Hey Theologues, welcome to the first edition of Theologcast. Uh, Theologcast is a podcast started by me, Eric DeLang, to stir, up dis- to stir up discussion, heresy, and questions from Christian critics, mystics, and cynics. And so I should mention the na- about the name a little bit, uh, Theologue, someone who loves theology or studies theology, a Theologue. And you can call it Theologcast. But you can't call it the Theologue Cast because that's redundant. You, if you want to call it the something, you can call it the Alog Cast, um, Theologue Cast. That's the that's the name we're going with for now. I am pleased to bring you this first episode. I can't wait to see what you think. It's with my friend Jordan Schroeder. He is a political science major at Trinity Western. He's graduating here along with many others of us. Um, and he loves theology, so I thought he was a good place to start. I really liked our conversation, and I think you will as well. And it has familiar sights and sounds. You hear the Trinity train come through at the very beginning, and so that's always nice. And halfway through, my roommate, Peter Wolkel, comes in, and it turns into a really good debate about the meaning of suffering. So that's pretty cool. I just did that like Rob Bell. I said, the meaning of suffering. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy. I hope you enjoy the show and uh, as much as I enjoyed listening and chatting. Here it is. So I'm going to ask you our starting off questions for this new podcast. And they're the simple questions. Who are you? Why are you here? And where are you going? Well, I guess I'll answer that in the straightforward way because I've never really seen myself as much of a philosophic type when I'm asked these questions. I tend to interpret it more in the simple way than the complex way. I'm Jordan, and I'm a fourth-year student at Trinity Western and studying political studies. And uh, next few months, getting married and going to go to law school at UBC, hoping to just kind of study everything the first year and see where life takes me and... Nice. See where God takes me in my career. Cool. Why are you here? That's one I'd be like. Here in Trinity Western. Here on Earth and Trinity, <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you want. Oh, uh, well, I've loved my degree so far. I, I originally came just to Trinity to uh, just to get my degree so I can move on to law school. But it's been quite a quite a life transforming process. I've loved integrating my faith into political studies. Uh, Especially, I, don't, I think that politics, your political view, should be so informed by your worldview, whether that's a religion, a faith, or, I don't know, just a set of principles that you go by. I don't think you cannot have a worldview hmm. informing your political stance. So, right now, I'm here to educate my worldview and integrate it with what I study. You know, there's that cross-fertilization, uh, and I think that's pretty important. Nice. I like that. Liberal arts as cross-pollination. Yeah, absolutely. I got that, uh, I got that phrase from uh, Mark Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, just nice. ordered it last week, and, and it's talking about how, well, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is no evangelical mind, kind of, right now, uh, that we kind of have neglected scholarship in the liberal arts, huh. and, uh, and we haven't really had any impact in that. universities. Yeah. Uh, and he talks about cross fertilization of the uh, of faith and the and the liberal arts oh. and how important 
is and that we've kind of neglected that. Huh. That's pretty cool. Um, your, uh, what's your denomination? Uh, well, the church denomination is Pentecostal. I mean, I probably don't really directly associate with Pentecostal anymore. Like, there's, I don't know all the tenets of Pentecostalism, but I know, like, the speaking in tongues being the evidence of the Holy right. Spirit. I don't agree with that. I think maybe it's an evidence, and I don't know too much about speaking in tongues in general, but I don't think it's the evidence for sure. Uh, I also believe, and this was from talking to my that same pastor, I think that Pentecostals also have this, a firm doctrine that uh, um, eschatology, like, uh, is, it, is it dispensationalist yeah, eschatology? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like rapture, like the that's that's dog series. Yeah, okay. Actually, I'm I'm 100 percent sure of that. Yeah. In order to become a Pentecostal pastor, you have to sign a statement of faith, and it includes uh, yeah. rapture and dispensationalism. Yeah, I went to a Pentecostal church for um for a couple years, and and w- I loved it there. This was a very it was familiar with the PAOC, um, but it but it was uh, it was in Edmonton, and they. They were great, but they, that was one of the stumbling blocks of becoming a member for me because I loved the church. I was like, oh, yeah, I should become a member. But, yeah, I had this whole long, like, 10-page document about, like, just with, like, footnote Bible verses, you know, mm-hmm. like one Bible verse taken out of context to, as why that we need the, spe- the whole speaking in tongues is the evidence of the Holy Spirit and um, uh, the evidence um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, dispensational eschatology. Which is too bad. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because I mean, I remember growing up in my church, and I I love my church, and I love going back there every summer and Christmas break and and whatnot. Because I because I, I remember growing up in my church and it being very open to views that were outside of dogma. Hmm. Uh, yeah, like when we did a book series on Revelation, uh, I remember my pastor talking about the three different views of the millennium, like amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. Yeah. And I don't believe that dispensationalism is, uh, uh, it works with all of them. No, they, they, yeah, on paper, they choose one. And that's interesting, too, because my pastor was, I mean, he was really cool with all all different ideas, too, and they had a theologizers group, they called it, where they (laughs) would read Bonhoeffer and stuff. It was awesome. And, um, but... But yeah, I, re- I remember uh, he said something to me where where the the pastor in the Pentecostal church, and this is what what made me kind of excited about the PAOC. The way it's set up structurally is that the pastor is beholden to his congregation, mm-hmm. not to some sort of hierarchical structure. So there is this sort of statement of faith that members have to sign. But I wonder how, because I I really doubt that my pastor believes in the the, the rapture and the. And that's uh, what I was thinking as well. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Yeah, so so it's interesting because yeah, I guess I guess they probably are more beholden to this uh, to the, their church body, you know, kind of where their church is at, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a super liberal one though, so we had like all kinds of different um, things going on that you know we often felt like you know we were the black sheep of the PAOC or whatever, and they were kind of giving us some <laughs> flack, or whatever. Uh, huh. Okay, so. Um, so let's talk about the Bible because <laughs> you've been reading the Bible yeah. and um, let's talk about something you've been thinking about. You can talk about Job like we were talking about earlier if you want or you, anything else. Well, I guess I'll fill them in on what I've been doing this semester is I've just been reading a lot of the Bible. Like I've read through over half the Old Testament. I've gone through Genesis to Psalms in the past 
three months. Uh, and usually I've, I haven't been reading like every day actually. So I've usually been reading, I I'll pick up the Bible like every two days or maybe in every three and I'll read like for an hour, an hour and a half. I've, I've been saying that I'm trying to read it like you read Harry Potter, you know, yeah. you don't pick up Harry Potter and be like, okay, I'm going to read three pages. I just like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you read and like, you, you have like, you know, I've got an hour of spare time. I'll pick this up and I'll start reading cause it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I've just been reading the history books and, uh, uh, now I've just recently gotten into the poetic literature, and yeah, I've been reading it like Harry Potter, except the, the Bible's even easier to read like that, because when I go to Eric's apartment or anyone's apartment on Trinity, they've always got a Bible on the on the coffee table, and I just flip it open, start reading it again. Good old Trinity Western. Yeah. He's <laughs> got Bibles uh, everywhere. That's that's sweet. And um, what's your what's your translation? ESV, extra spiritual version, of course. That's, that's, that's your... Nice. That's your uh, <laughs> translation of choice. Yeah. That's a, that's a good one. Did you come up with that? Uh, no. I can't remember who I heard that from, but I stole it. What's the if I say Yeah, if I say anything funny, I've probably stolen it from someone. <laughs> I'm not actually good at making my own jokes. I just steal jokes from other people. I wonder what the NRSV would be, because that's the one I love now. Like, I just got into the NRSV, and I'm like, man, this is cool. Like, it just... The one thing that I like about it the most is the paragraph structure. They just... It's all laid out so well. I, w- I was reading the ESV, and I, I like it, too. Like, it's yeah. quite literal. But, but they somehow, like, they're just starting new paragraphs in the middle of thoughts sometimes. And mm. I'm like, this doesn't... I don't know if I... We've got NASB there. Do you, is that yours or Peter's? That's Peter's, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, American Standard. Yeah, that one's pretty... Well, that one's pretty similar to ESV. Okay. Except there's... I, I, like, I hold them really equally. There's one thing that irritates me about the NASB is that is the the italicized words okay. that they have in the middle yeah. of sentences where the words weren't originally in the in the Hebrew, but they're usually really unimportant words like that or, you know, like conjunction words that are kind of assumed, maybe assumed in the one language, but not in the other. And yeah, so okay. when they have those there, it just it really distracts me from the reading because you usually see it italicized and you think, oh, emphasis. Right. Yeah. It's not actually emphasis I'm there. About that. How's it going, Peter? Good. <clears throat> Oh, we're rolling. Yep. Oh, yeah. We're rolling. Yeah, you're, it out. you're part of it. This is my testing one. Hot I think dog. The sound is pretty bad, so I don't know if we're going to be able to use it, but... Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I like the NASB. Um, honestly, I don't notice the difference between the translations. Okay. I don't remember anything specifically enough to pick out the difference. Yep, that makes sense. Message, King James Version, it's all the same to me. <laughs> Um, um, <laughs> um, see, that's the that's what I'm talking about when I say that I'm not funny. I don't come up with stuff like that right at the drop of the hat. Do you um? Do you what? What about talking? Let's talk about rights. Uh, Kingdom. Let's Testament. talk about it. Yeah. What's, yeah. What's, no. What's it's it's uh, it's good. I enjoy it quite a lot. It seems to be uh, seems to be quite quite consistent with um, at least the message of all the other translations I've read. Um, and it, 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 it explains, or it, yeah, does it all in a much more contemporary language, which I think is powerful and important. If we want the Bible to be something that the masses read, we need to be able to talk about it in a way that the masses understand. Mm. Seems odd to keep it in such archaic language that takes you know, a whole nother level of translation to be able to understand. And that's about as much as he says in the foreword, um, to it, which I would recommend everyone read, where he 
basically says that the responsibility of Bible translation is uh, is something that belongs to every generation. Yeah. Um, well, you don't want to have. Sorry, go ahead. Well, keep going. Finish your thought. Well, yeah, just that that each generation needs to be able to uh, to engage the text critically enough and um, and accurately enough to be able to hold on to the meaning while still updating it. Yeah. In terms of the words. Yeah, I think what the last thing you want is to have another level of translation happening while you're reading the text. Because like when you no matter which text you're going from, it's translated from the original Greek or original Hebrew. Right. Right. Uh, but I mean if you have something that's been translated from the original Greek into King James version and then you have a twenty year old reading it today, then he's translating from King James version into modern language, yeah. and who knows if he's getting some stuff wrong, right? Yeah. yeah so that's like kind of hidden it's, variables yeah, not in it's that. just an extra level of translation, mm. extra level of mistakes. Totally. Huh. Yeah, that's 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 pretty insightful, I think. Yeah. Well, and then the, the other thing that I'm thinking of on on that topic then is is uh, what about the extra level of translation, like um, not just in terms of language, but in terms of like those people that over explain, you know, when they're. They, they translate the Bible and they kind of like because I, I read the NRSV and it's supposed to be really um, like wooden and like like literal right and I'm reading it and I'm like this is so easy to read and then I go back to read the NIV which is more like dynamic and I'm like that doesn't even this sentence doesn't even make sense so I'm like I'm untranslating it and putting it more into like <laughs> trying to figure out what was dynamic about it and put it back to the <laughs> old one so I can or to the more wooden so I can actually because if, if you read the NRSV, like it's, maybe it's not flowery language, but but you you can you can read it and then say, okay, based on this kind of like uh, word for word, um, what exactly is being said here? And you have to connect the dots. But but yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, well, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So Jordan, to fill Peter in, Jordan was reading uh, Job and had a really neat thought. So let's talk about that. Mm. Let's talk about. Job and righteousness and uh, justice. Justice, yeah. Okay, well, I was reading Job, and I think I just, I kind of came across a secondary issue in Job. Uh, So Job's like normally talking about suffering and why righteous people suffer, but I actually ended up thinking about uh, the nature of God. Um, I don't really know where I should start from this. Well, let's say I kind of came to the conclusion that everyone in Job is a little bit wrong. Uh, so like Job is going through the whole, the whole book saying that, you know, he's righteous and that he doesn't deserve what's happening to him. Uh, and the Bible does say that Job was upright and maybe that means that he's in general, he follows God and he's very faithful to him. But at the end of the day, Job is still marred by original sin. He's still tainted by it. He has sinned at some point in his life. So I think that, uh, and then when you, when you think about the fact that at the beginning of the book, uh, God approved, well, he, he permitted Satan to, uh, to uh, what's the word? Uh, to, to allow him to, to suffer or whatever. Yeah, to, he, to he, per, yeah he permitted Satan to, to hurt Job. Like, like this pain, wasn't yeah. Satan ha- doing this on his own initiative or outside of God's control. God had to say yes. And that's like, that's an affirmative action to take and we need to remember that god is is perfectly just so he can't do things that that are unjust so there has to be an element of justice in god saying yes you can tempt you can uh, you can hurt job like it can't be unjust 
So I think in a way, like since Job is is tainted by original sin, since he has sinned at some point in his life, uh, it it says in a way that no matter how righteous we are, we still deserve uh, suffering that happens in our life. And it's the only way that we don't suffer is through God's grace. You know, his divine prerogative saying, you know, this person has been faithful to me and I'm choosing to have them not suffer. So I don't think, and Eric and I were talking about this at length before to try to figure out what I was saying exactly. I don't think that's the main purpose of the book to say that, you know, Job deserved his suffering. I don't think that was the main purpose. The uh, Job, the reason that God permitted Job to suffer was that uh, Satan wanted to to test him and see, you know, how faithful he would stay to, job, to, to God. And that's the that's the underlying reason. But going underneath all of that, there still has to be the fact that what God did was just. And yeah. so in some way, you know, Job still merits suffering is what I'm trying to say. How much of that made sense to you? Do you have any questions? It made sense. I, yeah, I have a hard time accepting the idea that any pain is just. I have a hard time accepting that... Uh, that God either allows or creates pain, um, if unless there's simply no no other way for it to be. Mm-hmm. In my mind, pain exists uh, because it has to. Because um, I don't even know why it has to. Maybe maybe free will. Maybe freedom. You know. Maybe there's something else. But I. I can't imagine that if there were any other world which God could have created in which pain doesn't exist, that he, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have created that world. Uh, it, pain to me seems something so antithetical to goodness, so so in opposition to God's, God's grace that I, I simply can't imagine a situation in which, uh, yeah, he could choose, let's say for Job, to not be in pain. And, and instead he chose to allow him to be in pain. And because of that, I have to look at Job uh, non-literally. I, I don't think Job was necessarily a real person, or at least that the situation described in Job was necessarily a, a literal version of what happened. I think I would, I would see it instead as, uh, as the journey that all of us go through in trying to grapple with pain as a whole. Um, the journey that all of us go through in looking at our lives and saying, look, I've tried my best. I've, you know, maybe I've made some mistakes, but I am at the very least trying to be an upright, righteous person, as the Old Testament calls us to be. Well, as the whole Bible calls us to be. But in this context, you know, as all the Jewish scriptures to Job would have called him to be. And yet, inevitably, there is still this pain in my life, whether it's as extreme as Job's with the death and destruction of basically everything he held dear, or whether it's something smaller, you know, the affliction of some disease, the death of a single loved one, um, the loss of, of your fortune, whatever it is, you know, some pain was done to you. And, and it's something we all have to deal with, something we all have to grapple with. And, and I think, you know, through the accusers, through this whole journey of, of, uh, of Job's parable, as I would see it, you know, we have to work through, um, through kind of those questions that come up, and ultimately we are we are left with with a big mystery. You know, we we don't necessarily get a clear cut answer within Job. God said, comes down and kind of says, "Who are you to question me?" And to me, that's that's uh, 
you know, kind of characterization of this fact that we don't necessarily ever come to a total answer to it. The problem of pain is one that I don't think can ever accurately or adequately be answered and something we simply have to give up and say, yeah, God, I'm, I'm going to have faith in you despite the fact that there is something in this world that clearly doesn't belong, something in this world that you really should be able to get rid of. Like, that's just, I, I don't, personally, I cannot find any way to get around this idea that God should be able to remove pain from this world, and yet it's not here. And so I've got to move beyond it somehow. I've got to say, well, yeah, you're the one who created it. My mind's not big enough to comprehend it. I'll leave it in your hands mm. and worship you nonetheless. Hope that these blessings will continue to come, or, or rather that, uh, that these curses will turn into blessings, and, and that by following you, maybe someday I'll, I'll find an answer, at least find some good wine and good friends along the way, as Ecclesiastes tells us. <laughs> yeah, see, the thing is, I, like, I disagree with that, though. I, I think mm. that there is a way that God can allow pain. I think that uh, allowing pain is part of allowing us the free choice. Uh, so he, he wants people to love him, and I believe that love's a choice. So in order to have love, you have to have free choice. And so when we freely chose sin instead of God, we chose we chose pain for ourselves, basically. And I, like, I don't think that sin is this temporary action that you do that has temporary consequences. So like when you tell a lie, it's not like a lie just you know stays in this room and it hurts Peter and no other people in the world. I think a, a sin is, is it has eternal ramifications. It puts mm-hmm. us in a state of opposition against God. So it's it's an, it's not a temporary mis uh, uh, it's not a temporary misdemeanor that we're creating that we're committing. It's uh, it's something that has eternal consequences and it's worthy of uh, from what I believe the Bible says of an eternal punishment. It's like a and, fundamental change of direction than a sin. Like, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Sin is a position against God instead of just like this temporary action. So a sin not only merits eternal punishment, but it also merits the curse here on earth. And so it kind of flips the tables because like we see injustice happening in the world and pain and suffering. And we ask, you know, God, why did you let this happen? But really, it isn't God's fault. Uh, I see it more as being our fault and the <clears throat> fact that we chose to rebel against him. I'm going to steal a concept from a Reliant K song here uh, <laughs> that... Uh, they say this life sentence that I'm serving I admit that I'm every bit deserving Hmm. but the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair so we go from having this idea of pain being life uh, pain making life not fair and and Job suffering making life not fair when really like suffering that's what our fair punishment is that's our fair deal eternal suffering that's our fair deal and then the only thing that's really made life not fair the only way that we get a deal that we don't deserve is grace. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. And um and I think that's that's kind of where you have to fall. There are there are some problems with that that I see though. And the first is the, is this idea that um that free will requires uh requires pain. Um and I would, I would ask the question, then, why couldn't God have created a universe in which free will is possible and, and evil is impossible? Like, it doesn't make sense for us to imagine a world in which you can freely do whatever you want, but you also can't do things that, that are evil, that cause pain. 
But God is, is supposed to be beyond us. God is supposed to be infinite. There's literally nothing that God is supposed to not be able to do, right? And so why couldn't he have created a world that is, in our mind, paradoxical? I mean, in fact, one of the main, one of the main thrusts of the Bible is that he constantly creates these paradoxes. Is that, uh, is that you know, there, he, is, he has made himself into a man, that he has combined... Uh, the divine, divine essence and the human essence in Jesus, and that then he went and died, that he killed himself. You know, I guess <clears throat> it's something that we can't necessarily imagine, envision, this idea of freedom and only goodness existing, uh, kind of existing together, but um, why can't God imagine that? Uh, and again, that's one of those things that you can ask the question, we're never going to get to an answer because, you know, it's, it's inherently something that we can't figure out on our own. That's really good, though. I, I, I've never, because I, uh, my normal response to, to what you said, uh, you know, why can't God create love without free choice is that I, I've always said that God creates, uh, although God can do anything, he can be limited by his own laws that he he imposes mm-hmm. upon himself, right? Yeah. So God can't create a square circle, right? Uh, and in the same way, God has created love. God created love, and love is inherently a choice between one thing or another. And so God can't, you know, all of a sudden on earth have love where there's only Him, or that's mm-hmm. not really a true free choice. Uh, but I like I really like what you said about God being the master of paradoxes. I never thought of that before because yeah, like. <laughs> being the God-man, and uh, it was just, it was a good point. I still, I I would still hold by what I said about God being limited by the laws that he imposes upon himself. Yeah, yeah, and and I, like I said, I think that's kind of, from a logical perspective, what you have to adopt. Um, You know, it's, you can have this, this state of mind, this mode of being where you question the very fabric of things, the very fabric of your belief, you know, the fabric of reality or whatever. At a certain point, you do have to give up those questions that don't have answers and, yeah. and settle on, on the surest answers that you can find. And I think that's, that's the one, you know, is that God does create certain, certain limits for himself or, or, or certain laws for himself that he then does not break. And I, yeah, to me, it's, it's a good one. I think it, it has its problems for, you know, when you're in, uh, when you're when you're in the midst of terrible pains, you know, like Job was, I think it doesn't necessarily um, provide as satisfactory of an answer as as you'd like to receive necessarily. But maybe that's just that just speaks to kind of the inherent difference between uh, being able to know something intellectually and simply feeling it in your heart. You know, yeah. the difference between knowledge and experience, or something along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's good, man. You are uh, you're teaching me to be a humble Christian. <laughs> you know, Thanks. To think about these things, and at the end of the day, still say, I've, I do still have questions. I, I, I think about them, and at the end of the day, still say, yeah, but I still think I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what he's he's taking me away from. That's the yeah. that's the political science way to go. That's the lawyer way to go. Now we're gonna move over to Peter's that's side cool. here. Yeah, yeah. That's a classic. Although I don't know why we're still debating this when Alvin Plantinga solved this problem. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Alvin Plantinga, he's like a 
contemporary philosopher of religion, and he has this big essay about the, the free will uh, uh, problem, or the, no, the logical problem of evil. Good, all-powerful, and uh, all... Oh, and evil exists in the world, and those three things being irreconcilable with each other. Um, and, uh, um, and then Plantinga, he does this big defense that makes free will. You should look it up. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And actually, most philosophers do... do uh, most contemporary philosophers of religion are, do kind of be like, okay, well, there's no more logical problem because he made it like at least possible that these things are reconcilable with each other. Possible, totally. which is pretty cool. But I don't actually think because he came up with that that, that solves Peter's problem at all. Where it's like, you know, he could have made logic different. Yeah, and well, it's like it's like what uh, Peter said too. Like, I I fully I fully believe what I was just talking about, but then there's a difference between believing that in your head and then when you're actually going through this, the suffering, having that being, wow. having that bring you satisfaction. Yeah. Well, I think you know? it'd be inter- it's, I think it's helpful to almost imagine Plantinga in that sense as like uh, the fourth of Job's friends, you know, because they all offer these answers. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them are fitting answers for the time, you know. They're answers that that a good Jewish person should have been able to look yeah. at and say, "Yeah, you're right. That's good. Yeah, you know, yeah, that should wow. uh, alleviate my suffering or explain my suffering in some sense." And so, for us, you know, maybe you could put Plantinga in there and be like, "Yeah, okay, that solves a logical problem, but pain isn't a logical issue. Really. Wow, it's an existential one, and it's one, you know, I guess if we admit that, if we all." come to that same conclusion and it's one that we're not really ever necessarily going to be able to come to an intellectual understanding of boom that's mic, so good mic drop yeah mic drop that's, <laughs> that's awesome that, that solves it and you have to get to class Jordan yeah it's been cool hanging out with you guys though I, I got one more question for you before we go and I told you about it <laughs> but in, what, what's your heresy that's the, that's the wrap up question every time oh man well heresy is so different to other people I mean you could have like a heresy for Cam Tees, and I don't even know what that would be. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> okay. uh, but then there's like heresy for me. I, I think that'd be a little more conservative of a heresy. Uh, I guess if I were to think about that, I come from a Pentecostal church, and going through four years of liberal, art, liberal arts education, I don't believe in sola scriptura anymore. Uh, and to expand upon that, I think that's very important that. Christians study things outside of the Bible. Maybe, maybe not necessary for so, salvation. Can you define sola scriptura? Because apparently, when Martin Luther came up with it, it it didn't mean what it means today. Huh? Yeah, it's so it's so hard to to put like a strict definition on it. I'll kind of give like the uh, I don't know the idea that most people think about today is that you only have to read the Bible. You know, like Christians. Uh, it depends on what what extreme people take it to as well. You know, like some people would say like, oh no, if you if you're if you're reading, all you really need to read is the Bible. Yeah. That should be like your, you know, any type of learned reading that you're doing. Just read the Bible. And that's the only thing you need to read to know how to be a good person and, and to know how to deal with, uh, you know, just the, the troubles of life. But I think that's very beneficial for Christians to not only read the Bible, but to also read philosophy and and to read history and, and to also be educated in like modern social science as well, right? So like I said, uh, I think this is C.S. Lewis. He says that the Bible says, uh, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Uh, but it doesn't say how to do that. You know, it doesn't say how to accomplish that in society. The Bible says feed the poor, but it doesn't give you a recipe to follow. 
so you know you have to figure out like is democracy the best regime to to uh, to you know help the poor and the and the widow you know you have to think about that is is a high tax system low tax system uh, you know strong welfare system or should you have more volunteers from mm-hmm. from the grassroots like these are things that you need to look at and you know use your use your intellect that God gave you it's things that the Bible doesn't really answer directly should you have a Nordic model of prostitution to protect vulnerable women or should you have uh, a legalized method. You know, there's so many people who would say different things, and as a Christian, uh, I think I have a responsibility to to try to be well educated and uh, and to read outside of the Bible. And plus, you know, like the Bible, we call the Bible the canon. You know, and that actually means that it's supposed to be like a ruler, a yardstick, something that you you measure all things up against. What what use is a ruler if you're not measuring it with it? If you're not measuring anything with it? Ha hmm. <laughs> ha. You know? Cool. That's how I think it about itself. it. Yeah, exactly. So you oh, need to you yeah. need to be using the Bible to measure it up, up not only against your personal Very life, nice. but against you know the education that you're getting and mm-hmm. and the things that you're trying to accomplish in your career in government or in your in your psychology sessions. If you're if you're a psychiatrist, like there's yeah yeah, I think it's important for a Christian to be educated outside of the Bible. So mm-hmm. that would be my heresy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, Peter. Oh, yeah.